Welcome everyone to episode 30 of Popcorn Peeps. This is the podcast in which we venture through the Hollywood Reporter's top 100 films of all time and give our thoughts along the way. In this episode, we are talking about the award-winning 2000 drama, Almost Famous, written and directed by Cameron Crowe, starring Patrick Fugit, Billy Crudup, and Kate Hudson. I am joined today by our tour manager, Sarah Alexander. Fever dog. Lead guitarist, Craig Moore. Rock on, brother. And the golden god himself, Chris McMullen. I'm a golden god! (laughs) (laughs) Oh, gosh. Let's start with you, Chris. What did you think of the film? I adore it. It's amazing. Perfect film. What a childhood Cameron Crowe had. I can't imagine being 15, 16 and on tour with these rock stars and having a job that is expecting you to deliver a standout article that thinks you're probably a 30 or 40 year old man. I love when he got on the phone and was like, oh, this is William. <laughs> I love the bit where his mom answered the phone yeah. and the guy's like, yeah, my old lady gets on my case too. <laughs> How about you, Craig? Yeah, this is a great movie. As far as coming of age stories go, it was very impressive to watch. The characters were really good. The music was really good. I enjoyed it a lot. I really like this film. I don't know if it's because of my limited movie watching experience, but it felt novel and unique. Uh, I think it's partially because it was somewhat autobiographical and they say truth is stranger than fiction sometimes, but it gave the film its own identity in a world where movies feel really samey. I'm also a big fan of classic rock, so I found it really easy to connect with William's giddiness at the beginning as he gets sucked into this world detached from reality. I grew up listening to ACDC, Black Sabbath, Led Zeppelin, Metallica, all that stuff, and so that was right up my alley. And our lead is so naive that it's perfect. He gets sucked in with such enthusiasm before he finds out that it isn't all fun and games, and this world is filled with immature people, flawed people, and at that point it becomes a really powerful rock and roll themed coming of age story with fantastic acting, particularly from Billy Crudup as Russell Hammond and Kate Hudson as Penny Lane. Do you guys want to chat a little bit about our prologue and some of the characters we're introduced to? I really liked the character of Elaine, William's mother, played by Frances McDermott. I always like her, but I thought that it was so easy they could have taken the trope of the overbearing mother and made her super unlikable, but they did it in a way that I still felt sympathetic towards her. I would probably be concerned if my kid was 15 and touring with rock stars too for days and days and days. It just kept extending, and I thought she was also a bit of comedic relief. The sister, I didn't really care about Anita. I understand that she was the crux to get this whole passion of rock into motion, but I feel like that's something William could have explored on his own and I didn't really need her. I thought the mom gave me a little bit of Red Foreman vibes from that 70s show. Just real real hard on the kids, but deep down is doing it because they know, they think that's what's best for them. Yeah, that's a good one. I, it's a good start. There's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing really that stood out to me when they were kids. Like You're right, Sarah. She could have just given them the record. She didn't have to storm out and hate her mom for, to move the plot. I could have cut everything with her in it. I like Zoe Deschanel, but I just, I don't see the use for her character here. I got a couple comments about the prologue. You know this movie is filled with banger after banger, but this prologue starts us up with Alvin and those chipmunks chef's kiss (laughs) add that one to your spotify playlist we get the christmas song don't be late i just think it's funny because christmas in socal itself just seems so strange to me mixing board shorts and santa claus in the same context always just feels like unnerving as someone who grew up in the the land of ice and snow but I think it does a good job acting as a stage to meet the family. I saw that Zoe Deschanel was in the credits at the beginning, and I'm like, oh boy, I love Zoe Deschanel. 
but man do we get teased because she's in the movie for a tiny bit at the very beginning tiny bit at the very end could have been less ah oh, no i think it does a good job setting the stage because we see that there's turbulence in the family and a little bit of mistrust but after she leaves there's no more turbulence i don't think so i his mom becomes more lenient she lets him go to the concerts and it was almost a complete 180 and make maybe that's because she learned the lessons with her daughter but like it just seemed inconsistent to me well it was inconsistent that was the purpose of the prologue right is we learned that the mother was harsh and overbearing to the daughter and it drove the daughter away so that she was afraid to make that same mistake with her son and drive him away too and then she gave him way more leash than any parent should ever give a 15 year old <laughs> kudos craig that was an, a fantastic analysis you're right I, I take it back it, it was important for her to be there craig's so smart that's why craig's been here for so long <laughs> that's why you haven't got rid of me yet occasionally i say something clever and you get such funny scenes where they're in the car and William is in the back seat and they're arguing about how old he is. And you sit there going, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm 12, right? I'm 12? <laughs> right, guys? <laughs> you guys, I promise? And they're like, uh, actually. And it's so good because that's following this great scene where all the kids are feeling their, their mustaches in the mirror and he's there like rubbing his peach fuzz. And it's just, it's a nice back-to-back -back laugh to kick us off and show off some of the, the good writing and the comedy that's in the film. I, I didn't feel like the intro was slow at all. Also, the intro gives us a great quote, one of the most quotable quotes in the entire movie. When the sister is leaving, she puts her hand on Will and looks him in the eye and says, one day you'll be cool. And I'm just going to use that all the time now because it's funny <laughs> as fuck. Craig does something really stupid. I'll be like, Craig, one day you'll be cool. And he does become cool, but not not in like a typical sense. He's cool being the more most mature person in this chaotic, fucked up little world as a 15 year old surrounded by all of these adults trying so hard to be the epitome of cool, the textbook definition. And it's so sad because he's the only one that still has some grip on reality. But he's the only one who's supposed to have a grip on reality, right? Because he's the writer. He's the journalist. He's supposed to have the objective view, the guy outside the box looking in. And that's the story. That's the way he brings us along on the story. So we can also be in the outside of the box looking in. That's true. So we get our time skip. Four years have passed. William is an amateur rock journalist, meets up with Lester Bangs and eventually Stillwater while trying to interview with Black Sabbath. What do you guys think of this section and some of our characters were introduced to? I love the way they introduced them, the Stillwater band, that Will was trying to get in to talk to Black Sabbath, I think. And obviously no one's going to let him within 20 feet of Black Sabbath, right? But then this other like B tier, maybe C tier band comes running in off their busted ass bus that probably broke down three times on the way here. And he kind of flatters them a little bit so that he can he can sneak his way in the door with them. It was It was a very good way to introduce us to all those characters. I loved it. I agree. Very clever. And it was a nice way to introduce him to the Band-Aids as well. Just they were loitering by the back door too where he was and they reach out to him. It just seemed natural versus this is so-and-so and so-and-so. It was very fluid. I don't know how 2022 it is to laugh at the, the joke they made about we're not groupies, we're Band-Aids, but it was funny. I laugh. I think it's funny that Hammond just has an interest in letting him in because he starts like stroking his ego. Like, you're the enemy, you're the enemy. Oh, oh no, you think I'm cool? You want to... You want to talk about how great I am? Come on in the circle. <laughs> he's a pro, but still he's looking for that gratification. Someone to just tell him how great he is. And it blows his ego up. And you can tell by the midpoint of the film that this guy, his ego is bigger than the surface of the sun. He might be my favorite character. Going back a little bit. I love Lester Banks. What'd you guys think of this guy? I wish there was more. 
Yeah, there should have been more Lester. He's awesome. He seems like this total loser at the beginning of the film, but he's like the only one other than his mom who really has what Will's best interest is in mind. And Will doesn't quite see that until closer to the end of the film, but he gave me major Jack Black vibes and in no context is that ever a bad thing. Just the way he's moving around. And we had one of the best jokes in the movie where he goes, I can't spend all day here talking to my fans. And then it cuts like three hours and they're in the coffee shop. Comes and to the next all scene. Story. <laughs> they're having a sandwich. Yeah, it's so good. And this is the first time we see this really cool device that the filmmakers use where they use the cut as part of the punchline. So they'll set up something really quick and witty and then they'll cut and the, what they cut to is the punchline to the joke from the yeah. previous scene. It happens here and they do it again when Russell is on the roof about to jump. <laughs> I think it's Willie's on the phone and he's like, I think he's on acid or something. Yeah. And then it cuts and he's on the roof and he's like, I'm gonna jump! <laughs> <laughs> they do it consistently. Uh, I know Craig would like this because he's a big fan of consistency, but they do it consistently and they nail it consistently. And it's funny every time. And it's really nice to see something carried out like that in such such an impressive way. It's just a masterclass in, in comedy and filmmaking. And I loved it. Yes, they did a good job of telling jokes from beginning to end. <laughs> but not just that. Certified Craig approved. But they interspaced good jokes in throughout a story that was also telling us a pretty serious story about the the players in it without dragging us down and how serious and depressing this world is by using jokes to keep it light enough to enjoy. Craig approved. <laughs> a lot of films sacrifice their narrative to lean into comedy, but this film does narrative and comedy so well in tandem together that I really think this is an important film for that reason. Nothing is sacrificed. Everything seamlessly meshes together. And I think that's why it's on this list. It's the first one in a while that really, I think, deserves to be on this list. What do you guys think of our girl Penny Lane? I thought it was really well introduced because she does come off like a, from a very strong perspective. She is retired and she knows what she's going after, so she lets on. But then when he, William, is introducing her to Russell, and then just from that one scene where they're shaking hands and then the tears start up in her eyes, like you know something's going on here. There's obviously more behind the facade that she's putting forward. I think Kate Hudson did an amazing job in this. And what has she been in since? That's been no worthy this was like her breakout thing right i don't remember her in anything and like she's like 21 in this no like where did she go yeah and then she just fell off the face yeah i think like i saw anna paquin was 18 or something penny's my favorite character in the whole movie i'm a sucker for the tragic person in this story and I think she's self-aware. She even knows because she gives the advice and then she is not able to follow it. But I think she she's not deluded into the fact that she can't follow her own advice. Certainly. This is not her first rodeo, right? This isn't her first. She's not just meeting the band. She's been broken by this band and the guitarist before. And she knows don't fall for any of this. It's not real. Yeah. The reason she's saying that is because she already fucked up. Like she's in too deep and she's warning him, don't get in as deep as I am. And who knows, maybe if they hadn't been with Stillwater, if it had been a different band, she might have been able to follow her own advice. But she just slipped back into the old pattern with Russ. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. I don't know, man. She's delusional. She's unhinged. Unhinged? She's not delusional or unhinged. She's trying to ride a wave that she is just slipping further and further away from. She's riding a wave that they are pushing the wave out there. Like 
they're not doing anything to get rid of her. He's like inviting her to come to this, come to this. Like when she went to get ice, he had a choice to sit down in that hotel room, but he went and met her in the in the locker. Like I think to put this all on her is missing how manipulative he was for his own gain. Yeah, Russell's a piece of shit. He's fucking awful. And that's why I think the actor did such a beautiful job in creating somebody who on the surface is inviting and friendly. And then once you once you get to know them, you see kind of the, the toxicity and the, the narcissism. That's that's why I don't think you can call her unhinged. No, she definitely wasn't unhinged. Acknowledge that he's like that and how manipulative he was to call her delusional and unhinged just for buying what he's selling. Did say it didn't count because it was in a time where we were being open to everything. So we don't know if when Russell and Penny met that it was okay or not. How it started. Yeah. Penny and Russell are such an interesting dichotomy though, right? Because for about the first maybe 45 minutes to an hour of the movie, Russell's this guy that we want to love. You want to love this guy. He's a rock star and he's cool and he's nice to Will and he's a great guy. And then you you learn that while you want to love him, you have to hate him. And the sad thing on the other side of that coin with Penny is she seems to be the, such a great, happy person and things are going on and she's always having a great time and partying. And then the further the movie goes on, you realize that you have to feel sad for her. And it's this very interesting, they pull the carpet out on, underneath you for both characters at pretty much the same time. And the whole movie just shifts from being this happy-go-lucky story about a kid following these rock stars to, ooh, ew, this is really, this is really a grimy underbelly of something that I didn't think where this was going. I think that might be why I like it. She is happy because she is just believing her own lies about the situation she's in. She wants- I, I don't buy that. No, she does not. I don't think she believes them. She tells herself the lies, but she doesn't believe them. The heart wants what the heart wants. Then why is she in New York? Because she's in love with Russell. This can be another one of those episodes of Popcorn Peeps where Craig and Chris try to explain feelings to the robot that is Jordan. <laughs> beep, 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 beep. <laughs> Does not compute. Does not compute. Um, Logically, you would not get on an airplane to go be with someone who didn't want to be with you. Reminds me of Brokeback Mountain, just your take on this. It's just everything is so black yeah. and white and not the shades of gray that are relationships. There is justice and there is evil okay. in this world. <laughs> I will fight for what is right. My signal in the sky, off I go. <laughs> okay, look, I want to say a little bit about Penny. So she, to me, seems like the mani manic pixie dream girl archetype. And I used to simp for this so hard. Back when Scott Pilgrim came out and Ramona Flowers was a similar archetype, I was swooning. I was swooning hard. But as I got older and more mature, I look back on this archetype and the behaviors of characters like this. And I'm just a crotchy old man yelling at the sky from my, my tower of wisdom. How dare you make such dumb mistakes? I get it. They're young. They're reckless. They're seeking for happiness. But I have a hard time resonating with her when she makes such terrible choices. Does that make her a bad character? No, but it makes it makes her frustrating to watch for sure. Yeah, I don't see Ramona Flowers as a manic pixie dream girl. They're both strong women who have past relationships, have complexity to their character. I never saw them as manic uh, pixie dream girl, and I would have been closer to your age when I saw this. We need to get someone to break Jordan's heart. That's fair. Very <laughs> Yeah, maybe. Jen! <laughs> you leave her alone. Jen, break his heart, but then, like, after he's learned his lesson, jump out and go, like, it was a prank! <laughs> it 
It was for the podcast. Anyway, my favorite character was Russell. He is the personification of rock and roll and its culture, and he is the perfect bait to not only lure Penny onto this journey of self-destruction, but bring Will into the fold. He does such a good job, and the character is so well-written, and you love to hate him. I don't know if we watched the same movie. Did you watch a different cut than I did? There's a duality to him, and ah, it's wonderful. It's a it's a treat to see. <laughs> On one side, he's this this friendly guy who everyone wants to be friends with, but beneath the surface, he's he's vindictive and narcissistic. And there's there's two Russells. No, there are not two Russells. No. You no, know, and everyone sees through it. The rest of the band knows, like Jason Lee's character. No, that's that's what I mean. That's why it's impressive. But Penny doesn't. Yes. William doesn't. Yes, Penny yes. does. Penny does. I think she does. Penny knows. She does. Penny knows and Will figures it out. She does now, but not but but not before she got lured into this situation. She's been there before though with him though. I'd bet my money yeah, on it. Yeah, just based on their first introduction, quote unquote introduction to each other, that was a they know each other. Penny knew exactly who he was and he knew exactly who Penny was. This isn't the first time or the last time this has happened. He traded her for a case of beer. Penny thought he could be more than he was. She could change him, Everyone hopes that. She could change him. I don't think so. She knew deep down what he was. She could see what he was. I didn't get the vibe that she was trying to change him. She made comments about, you don't know what he says to me when we're alone. That's her just trying to almost reinforce it for herself. Trying to, what is it? She's trying to alleviate any cognitive dissonance here. Yeah. Like, oh, maybe this time it'll be different because... She had herself trapped in her own fairy tale. I think that she knows exactly what she's in for, signed up for it, but when Leslie shows up and she is not... I think possibly she thought there was some world where the three of them could coexist. Maybe. Yeah, I I think I can see that. Probably. Leslie is there and Leslie clearly doesn't know who Penny is. I think that's probably what causes her, that for sure, is her downward spiral, but not because she's just realized that Russell's never Never gonna leave his wife but the whole framing of of their relationship just is not gonna work i agree with you i think russell's kind of mindset is what happens on tour stays on tour and all of them probably yeah. so we've met our characters we're on the road are there any pivotal points in the film that you guys want to talk about specifically their standout moments moments that made you laugh moments that made you cringe the one moment that kind of stuck out for me when Russell's in the hotel room and, and he's done this trip or, or sorry, when Will's in the hotel and he's done this trip over to Russell's room a number of times. We've seen it. He knocks on the door. Russell says, fuck off. And he needs this interview with Russell to write his story. And Russell keeps saying, oh, you know, get get to me when we're in L.A. And then he doesn't talk to him in L.A. Oh, get me get to me later. He never talks to the kid. And he sits down in that chair and he's upset and he's angry and he starts crying. That really struck me pretty strong. The movie does this good job of dragging you along with the band. It doesn't very often remind you that this is just a kid. He's 15. He's a little boy. I had that exact thing written down. When he sits down and cries, you're like, oh shit, he's a kid. And the other point that I'd like to know is that apparently no only means no when it's a girl. A kid perfect for deflowering. Okay. Oh, yeah. Did he say no at any point? Yeah. Yes. The whole time. He's like, no, no, I gotta get to work. No, no, no. <laughs> this ain't no young Frankenstein. There's no, no, no. Yes, yes. It was just no and then we cut. <laughs> well, it wasn't no, it, then you cut. It's no and then he's watching them dance around him with scarves not saying no but I'll, i agree up until that point he had been he was saying no and trying to get away from the the bed and the girls were grabbing him and pulling him onto the bed like flip the That's script fair. if this was a 15 year old girl it would be outraged yeah 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 
I have a note here that says rape versus fantasy. I don't think this is okay. It was uncomfortable, but I do think back to when I was 15, maybe I would think like, oh my God, so cool. But as an adult, I just, I felt uncomfortable about the situation. I want to bring up a moment on tour here where we get to the first hotel and there is a starstruck dude that is just freaking the fuck out that there are so many famous band members there and he's holding a sharpie in his left hand, got a band tee right on, right front and center with all the tour dates and that <laughs> that was me for a period of time and so I thought that was just such a nice touch to include. I, I was so bad with anyone with any sort of fame that I would forget how to use my brain, forget how to use my mouth. There was this one time at Anime North where a YouTuber was there, a very popular anime YouTuber, and I went up to talk to him, and my mouth is stopped working, and I didn't know what to do. This was almost a decade ago. Jen brings it up and laughs because she said it was one of the funniest fucking things she's ever seen. Me just very composed devolve into a blob in literally six seconds. That happens to me with pretty girls. I gotta tell you that the 16 year old me never, never moved out. <laughs> but anyway, I thought this was such a nice touch and it spoke to me a little bit. Yeah, I feel like we might not have all been there, but like I remember in high school when I'd go to like taste of chaos tour and i'm waiting by the door with my sharpie and my shirt for them all to sign you think back now and it's like oh yeah i, I was 15 and i'm in a tank top wanting them to sign my chest and how uncomfortable that probably was for close to 30 year old men yeah one other moment i really liked was when the stillwater band calls the people at rolling stone and rock journalists in general swill merchants i have no idea why that phrase is just funny as fuck and cracked me up that was good i like that <laughs> How about you, Chris? Any moments that stood out to you? On the bus where Tiny Dancer comes on and they, like, they're all kind of, some of them are pissed, whatever, but it just sort of brings them together and they just have this magic experience where they're all in the moment, sing along with the music. You have two or three of those moments in your life and I think they captured that feeling perfectly. That to me was very much like the, the show must go on moment. Like, yeah, we hate each other and mm -hmm. the bridges aren't mended, but... But there's still something between us too, right? And they could they went back to that pure, the reason they were together, right? Yeah. And the thing that connected them all, even though they were so different. To me, that's, that scene is just, mm -hmm. uh, just a perfect piece of cinema. Yeah, and moment, moments like that stand out and they emphasize why some of the, the bullshit or the struggling is, is worth it to, to get to points like that because that's like a once in a lifetime opportunity and as much as those guys fight and they scrap with each other, when the stars align here and their things are working and their life is good, like those are some of the best moments they'll ever have in their life. So I, I totally get it. I understand why they're sticking together even though they've got so much beef. Yeah. Plane crash, confession, Rolling Stone situation, and resolution. What do you guys think? I love the plane scene. Even in such a moment that was high energy and crazy, what the hell is going to happen? They still managed to make it funny enough <laughs> to not delve into what the terror of the scene actually should have been. Do you hold your secrets to the grave or do you, do you blurt everything out right there? Because my <laughs> thought is just to keep my lips zipped. Oh no, they're coming. <laughs> I'm taking them down. <laughs> There's just a lot of moments like that. Little details. When you look at them all together, it just makes me so much more impressed about the final product. Yeah. It doesn't feel shallow in any way. Mm -hmm. No, not, a, not anything. The band in this movie sold out. The movie did not sell out. It was not a dud. No, it lost $30 million at the box office. It was a dud. Yeah, yeah. It's because people are stupid, sir. The budget was $60 million. I think it only made 30 something with American and worldwide screenings. Wow. What kind of music were people into in the 2000s? Could that be a reason why this didn't necessarily bring people to cinema seats? I don't know because I was 10. I was 26. 
I was would have been 26, the music I would listen to would not be this music. That was, well, the stuff I listen to now, like Nine Inch Nails and things like that. But I still love this movie when I saw it because this was the music of my youth. This was the music that my parents listened to. There was that nostalgia. So, And so you'd have a whole generation of people who, right. even if you didn't like classic rock, you still would have had some fond memories of it. Yeah, we're far away now, but you would have at least been classic rock adjacent in 2000. Bye 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 by NSYNC came out in 2000. Yeah, maybe people just thought music was dead and they're like, I don't want anything to do with anything music related. Fucking sync. <laughs> oh, I know you are not talking shit about NSYNC. <laughs> I used to have an NSYNC pencil case. <laughs> <laughs> Take that one down on the plane, Jordan. You shouldn't have let that one out. Yeah. I had a whole collection of InSync and Spice Girl pencils, Craig. I'll have you know. And I thought I was cool as fuck. <laughs> one day you'll be cool. I thought the confession scene itself was a really dramatic moment in the film, but I can't help but feel the whole romance was scuffed. And the kiss that happened was awful. And the fact that he announced he was going to boldly go where every man had gone before prior to the kiss made it at least 10 times worse. Yeah, it was pretty crazy. I thought the romance itself between William and Lady Goodman. Penny. Penny, thank you. I could remember the weird name for some reason and not the, the name <laughs> we used the entire time. I think it was good in the sense that it acted as a point of development for our characters, but it seems like the, the kiss really felt jarring to me. Well, I think it was a very one-sided romance. Like, she only kept him around because like, it was somebody who liked her and somebody who actually appreciated her and wanted to be with her. That made her feel good. Is she not the same as Russell if she's doing this to William? Yeah. I don't think she is. So there's the whole love and in love thing. I think that she deeply cares for him. I don't think she's using him or stringing him along. Or she left him with the three girls, right? And at no point does she lead him on to think that there's any mm -hmm. kind of physical relationship. But they are, they have like a deep connection. And she is the one that both brings um, Russell and Will together at the end. And she actually is the glue that and the, the catalyst for their like growth. You would almost say that she was like a band-aid. Oh shit. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh my god. god. Craig, whatever I'm paying you, double it. <laughs> nothing says nothing. Two times zero is still zero. <laughs> Russell was a little deluded. Penny, not at all. I think that she was both honest with herself and with others. And it still did the things that helped the other people grow, the Russell and Will. Penny was so honest with herself to the point where she never lied to herself, but kept making bad decisions anyways. And I can 100% relate to that. I think a lot of people can relate to that, at least at some point in their lives, have known what the right decision is, known that if they make the wrong one, it's not going to go well, and still went down that wrong road. Sometimes you just got to know for sure. Yeah, that's why I take exception to the unhinged. I think that she was as hinged as possible. It's part of growing up. I don't think she was unhinged. I disagree with Jordan. So unhinged is like a vibe. But I think it was also just the time, right? Like she was just free and down to go with it. Like she's not hinged to a something in particular. Like she's, she is more fluid of a person. Unhinged comes off as something wrong mentally. And there wasn't that. If we all put in our resignations tomorrow, we can be band-aids together, guys. <laughs> Let's go on tour. I think times have changed. <laughs> I'm not pretty enough to be a band-aid. We don't have to sleep with band members, but we can go on a journey of self-discovery. Blowjobs only. <laughs> That's my policy. <laughs> only blowies. <laughs> 
So we're getting close to the end of our film here. I almost thought if William gets burned and his story never gets posted in Rolling Stone, it's almost a more satisfying ending in the sense that it's just really bittersweet. He doesn't get the gig, but he learns a valuable lesson. But we really get an oddly pleasant ending considering the train wreck that his life was in the last quarter of this film here. How do you guys feel about how we resolve the movie? Well, I'm going to do the uh, uncharacteristic thing and disagree with Jordan. Because <laughs> we've been doing that all night. Uh, Jordan, I disagree with you. I think that every character in this story, every single main character in this story had a full developed character arc. Will went from being a little boy through this story of self-discovery into a young man. The daughter came home and was able to get along with her mother and the mother was able to let go a little bit and let her kids grow up and then get along with her daughter when she came back. Penny grew up and kind of became a little bit wiser for her scars and pushed Russell away and said, I'm going to go be my own woman. And Russell, the beauty Russell, who was a dog shit piece of crap, this whole movie righted his wrongs. He didn't know he was going to see Will, but rather than running out the door, he apologized and did the right thing. He grew up. I don't disagree with you. I'm just saying I like when the wound hurts a little bit at the end of the film. And even Russell and Jeff, when they make up, I thought that was resolved really nicely too. How they just agree like, okay, maybe we don't have to get along. It would have been nice, but here we are kind of thing. Jeff Beebe. Is Jeff the lead singer? Yeah. Does he not sound and act exactly like Ryan Reynolds? I didn't get that vibe. I totally got that vibe. He acts like Jason Lee, the, the way Jason Lee is in almost everything. He's, yeah. I think the ending is quite good. Just my personal taste. I don't know. I like when it stings a little bit, I like a little bit of a bittersweetness. I felt like our bow was tied really well here. This puzzles me because... I like consequence. Sorry. Just of how you didn't like the shades of gray at the beginning and how it was black and white. You don't like things wrapped up black and white. You want your shades of gray at the end. I like shades of gray. I, I was just joking about whether she had to be. That was a joke. <laughs> I just like when there's a set, like there's an exchange at the end. I feel like you you lose something to gain something. There was there's the perfect exchange. Craig set it out for you. Craig was talking about how everyone's storylines concluded because they had gone, th gone through their own personal arcs. I feel like nobody had to lose something. Personal in the sense that the character's story was resolved, but every character's closure was because of an exchange with somebody else. Like he demonstrated the one with Russell and Will and Penny and Russell and Will. I just felt like the ending felt oddly like a Disney fairy tale where out of this crumbly ball of garbage came everyone's perfect conclusion. I don't feel like real life works like that. It just felt oddly synthetic nothing's perfect. Like, think about what's actually going to happen here. Russell's a guitarist with a band that hates him. Will's a kid who has a bright future ahead of him and just grew up. His sister, it seems like she left everything behind to go be a stewardess for an airline, left her bright future behind. Penny's flying over the ocean to try and find herself after getting her heart broke, that Russell's marriage is falling apart and his band is too. Like, there's no happy ending here. All we have is a lot of good character growth, people who learned lessons and are better for it. Life doesn't always have to be shitty. Sometimes you can have a nice ending, and I think they did a good job with this. Yeah, you guys bring up some good points, and looking back on this now, I, I do get where you guys are coming from, and ah, it's probably a better ending than I gave it credit for. But hey, that's cool. That's why it's fun to discuss it. Do you guys want to move on to talk about some music? Yeah, let's talk about the music. 
This is the first time I sought out a soundtrack after we listened to it because I had to know. I was like, was Fever Dog released as a legitimate song? Actually, let's go around. What is your favorite song on the soundtrack? Fever Dog, to come up with an original song like that, that's a banger that fits in seamlessly. And for Cameron Crowe to have had a hand in writing it, talented. Fever Dog was not the most memorable for me. It was. That's the only original song from this movie. Tiny Dancer is the best song. I love Paranoid by Sabbath, but I can't argue against the fact that The Wind by Cat Stevens is the best song in the soundtrack. Fucking slaps and comes at such a good point in the film. There was a lot of great music in this movie and a lot of the songs were really well placed. I would go on record Craig's certified opinion that there are plenty of bangers, but I would say I have to strangely agree with Jordan. We're going to we're going to wrap Let's this go. up on a three point. <laughs> the wind was incredibly well placed in this movie. It touched my heart. It's kind of when everything's just falling apart and it comes in sweeps you away. It's got this nice kind of like crispy melodic slow kind of tone and it really it really situates you in the the aura of sadness that's happening happening right now with all these characters it just lets you connect with the mood that they're in yeah i think as a song it's great and i think the placement is great and i think what it does to allow you to resonate with the characters is great it's just this like slow low easy song kind of brings you out of the high octane scenes and just moves you into the end of the movie before we rank this, we're going to be hit by Sarah's rapid fire facts. Hit us with your facts. One of the Easter eggs to the extended edition, which I would recommend watching, is that there is an 11 minute scene that where um, William plays Stairway to Heaven for his mom and Cameron Crowe could not get the rights for Stairway to Heaven. So how it is instead is there's a little play now button and you're supposed to play it yourself and it'll sync it up. Oh, that's no way. Perfectly, yeah. You can find it on YouTube with the music overlaid, but just picturing it in silence and, and then you having to do it for yourself is pretty clever, I thought. In Scott Pilgrim, not to like throw back to that, but the main characters are part of a band and it's a comic book. So like, how are you supposed to hear the music? The music and the lyrics are written at the top and bottom so you can hum along as they play. Oh, that just fun. reminded me of that oddly similar. Yeah, yeah. yeah we, we don't have it, but you can provide it. Um, and the other one is this actually has one crossover to another movie that's on our list, uh, personnel wise. And it's actually from Chris's favorite movie. Braveheart, same cinematographer. If you're following along with the YouTube video, there's a link at the top of the description to check out where we've ranked the films we've seen thus far. However, without further ado, Sarah, where are you going to put Almost Famous amongst the films we've seen so far? I really enjoyed this movie. I thought it was great to watch. It had that nostalgic vibe to it, even though I was not alive in the 70s, but just that coming of age story. It was fun. I'm putting this in my second spot beneath 12 Angry Men and above on the waterfront. I love this movie. I had a really hard time figuring out where it should go, but ultimately it's in my number two spot. The only thing that I think is better is seven. Um, and I think on a different day, you might've got a different answer, but seven just resonates with me more. It's knocked out memento. And I, I, as, as I'm ranking these, I think we're gonna have a lot more upsets as we move down the list. I think in the first, like probably 70, there's gonna be a lot of stuff that is like, where you guys are like, 12 Angry Men or uh, on the waterfront, greatest thing ever. And I'm like, I wanted to blow my brains out. But I think once we, <laughs> I think once we get down to like into the 30, like 30 and below, it's, it, it, there's not going to be as many upsets. 
It's interesting that Chris mentions On the Waterfront because Almost Famous beat out On the Waterfront for my third place. I love this movie and I just finished saying last week that it's tough for a comedy to break into the top half for me, but this isn't just a comedy. This is a comedy, but it's a coming of age story. It's a drama. It's tragic. It's just a beautiful, beautiful story with an incredible soundtrack. Okay, so I guess it's my turn. I'm going to place this film at sixth place below Inception and above All the President's Men. I thought it was great. It's got one of the best soundtracks on the list thus far. Probably the best, actually. Yeah, it's so low. I can't believe this isn't in your top five. So low. We've seen 30 movies and this is six. Okay, let me tell you what's above it. Return of the King has goblins. Get fucked real life. (laughs) Memento is fucking the best movie Christopher Nolan's ever made. On the Waterfront, perfect. 12 Angry Men proves to you that you do not need sound engineering or special effects to make a fucking banger of a narrative. Inception, DiCaprio is a babe. And then right here. Yeah, 100%. This was better than Inception. This is way better than Inception. Not even close. It's going in sixth place. Chris, what are we going to be watching in episode 31 of Popcorn Peeps? Vertigo, 1958. Another one from 58. Um, I don't know if we have any other uh, Alfred Hitchcocks on the list, but this will be interesting to see your guys' take on it. This is, movie has been on my to-watch list for a long, long time, and I probably would have seen it, but we started the show, and I wanted to save myself and give my first impressions uh, during the episodes, but I'm really excited. Unfortunately, it looks like the only place you can stream it is the Criterion channel without having to, without incurring an a, a, you know, incremental cost. And then you've got your Cineplex, Apple TV, Google Play, Microsoft, Amazon. Before we leave, I would like to extend a special thank you to those who support us on Patreon.com. If you would like to support the show, there's a link at the top of the description. However, thank you so much to Erica Wilson, Travis Laporte, Craig Lewis, Jim Walmsley, Ryan Saarinen, Frank Costa, Sarah Renier, Tyler Laporte, and Jack Mioff, as per usual. Thank you so much for your time, and we'll see you in the next episode. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody. Stay groovy. Bye, thank you. Do do we know if he really lost his virginity to the three girls? I would assume so. What happens on the road stays on the road, Chris. Would it only be one or would it be all three? So they would each have one third of his V-belt. But once once it's done, it's done. Like the second one would be irrelevant because he would no longer be. I think it's a it's a contiguous event. Hmm. It's yeah. Yeah, it's all part of the same experience. <laughs> ah, okay. No, I think our, our listeners need to chime in. If you lose your virginity in a threesome, I really think if anything's getting <laughs> edited out, there should be one of this should be a piece of it. <laughs> Did the first act of. <laughs> Yeah, this is actually an interesting poll. Let's find out how this goes. So if you lose your V card in a threesome, do each of the girls... Oh, is it the one that you p- finish or is it the one that you first penetrated? No, it's it's all of them. I think start. Like, see, you had 50 people. Like, it can't be. That, and that's, that is where I... Or is it just one whole experience? It's like, this is my first sexual experience. So the entire it's thing... It's one experience. Yeah, you know what? Actually, Chris... H- heteronormative to say... I yeah. am on board with this because, you know... You said, you know, a very heterocentric view. And and it is. It absolutely is because, you know, there's plenty of people out there who lose their virginity without any penetration at all. Boom. Case closed. I agree with Chris. And if your first experience is with 50 people. Chris is right. If your first experience (laughs) is with 50 people. Sarah, you're um, wrong.